Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I'm so happy and grateful to have Melissa Poins with us here today, who is a clinical psychologist, holistic wellness coach, international educator and consultant, as well as a trauma-informed mindfulness meditation yoga teacher and Ayurvedic doula. She owns an online holistic coaching business that integrates evidence-based tools from psychology with wisdom, from complementary and alternative medicine to help women work through anxiety, self-doubt, and self-judgment in order to live their lives in alignment with their innermost needs, desires, dreams, and values. Oh, I love that. In addition to her advanced training in various Eastern and Western healing modalities, Dr. Foynes received her PhD from the University of Oregon and completed fellowships at the University School of Medicine and the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. She has held academic appointments at the medical schools of Boston University and Harvard and held several national level positions in healthcare organizations focused on women's mental health, sexual trauma, and trauma-informed care. Melissa, welcome and thank you so very much for being here today. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's truly a, a joy and delight to be here. As, as it is for me too, right? I feel like we've been able to spend so much time together this last month. It's been really a treat. And I'm glad to be able to dive into your world a little bit today, especially when we're looking at issues around stress and trauma. I have heard in the data I've seen from this past year, it's been quite astounding to hear how people have been experiencing stress and anxiety and different different modalities of trauma and a few few of the statistics that really were startling to me. I think the CDC released something, was it late last year, earlier this year, and they were measuring the data against, I think, June of 19, and they were saying it was something like a 33% increase in adults reporting some sort of suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. strong consideration of suicide. And then locally here in town, there was a statistic early on from one of the one of the centers that deals with abused and battered women. And there was a huge uptick in that, in people mm-hmm. being trapped at home, trapped at home with abusers, increased with all the extra stress, people are self-medicating more. I, so I guess it's a long way of introducing. I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering what has your experience been? Have you been hearing these kinds of things come out of your world? And then part two of that is how can we, you know, as we start to, you know, move forward from COVID, how can we begin to address some of these, some of these other sufferings that have gone on through COVID and begin to support and heal and nurture each other? What does that look like for all of us? Mm-hmm. Really, really great and important questions. So I'll start with the the first, which is that absolutely what you described from those data, from the research that coincides with what I've seen in my own practice locally and internationally, as well as what I've seen in some of the healthcare organizations that I'm affiliated with on a national scale. And tied into some of the statistics that you mentioned are the increased risk of abuse and violence and trauma in children because they too are often at home in less than ideal circumstances, often traumatic circumstances, as well as an increase in depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and behaviors in children as well. So 
uh, of course, we could spend our whole time talking about some of the negative impacts of this pandemic. And I, I do think that we're also still seeing the impact of the pandemic. And I'm not a gambler, but if I had to bet, I would say that we will continue to see a, a surge in some of these challenges because I think many people have been in a bit of survival mode for the past year and a half and have really been focusing on getting through their day-to-day. And when our nervous systems are in that fight or flight mode, in that survival mode, we don't process what's Mm -hmm. happening because that's not where our resources need to be dedicated. And so this, this happens in other kinds of traumatic experiences also sometimes in in grief experiences where we experience some kind of loss, whether it's related to a physical death or something that doesn't involve a physical death, where in the immediate aftermath, we are somewhat dissociated from our emotional experience because we're getting through the remembrance rituals, the the mourning, um, putting together all of those arrangements, and then things start to settle in more deeply later. So all this to say that that things, all the things that you mentioned have really increased quite a bit. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if it might, we might still continue, continue to see a rise as things move forward, as we really fully process what has happened, what we've experienced because of the, the need that we all have had to really not focus so much on the processing and focusing more on the survival and the getting through So I think that segues nicely into your next question about what can we do? And I think one of the most important pieces that come to mind for me is really trying to honor what our experiences have been Mm -hmm. and really allowing whatever constellation of emotions those experiences are associated with to have a voice and to rise to the surface. It's, um, I I think I heard this many years ago from another psychologist. It might've been Kristen Neff. It might've been someone else, but to heal, we have to feel. And so I, I know that might sound pretty basic and I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think that's a core principle that is common for us all as human beings. Now that processing can happen in therapy or with a coach, it can happen with friends and family and loved ones, with peer support groups, it can happen through physical exercise, through spiritual practice. So I think there are a multitude of ways in which we can process emotion, feel our emotions. But I do think at the core for for healing to happen, we do need to acknowledge what's there and to give it space to show up. And so I think that's, that's one of the key pieces. And I think tied into giving our emotions space is this idea of then how do we care for ourselves while we are allowing those emotions to surface? Because again, that can be really challenging and destabilizing when we've cut off from them to some extent in order to survive for very understandable reasons. And so how can we scaffold so that we have the right amount and type of supports in place to really facilitate that feeling in order to heal. So a lot more to be said, but I'll pause there. No, I love that. And I think there's, there's a couple spots maybe we can dive in a little deeper with when you're, when you're 
talking about acknowledging what what's there. For someone who's listening and watching, they're at home right now, they've been going through it, they're, they're starting to kind of move past that survival piece and really process some of the stress and anxiety mm-hmm. that they've been they've been struggling with for this past year. Are, is it something they need to acknowledge to themselves? Is it something mm-hmm. they need to acknowledge to people, a person? It, what does mm-hmm. that process look like? Is it an individual basis? Mm-hmm. Great question. I love this question. So I think in my mind, it needs to start with the self. And in terms of what it looks like to acknowledge, one one kernel that I want to lift up that I think is really important is that many of us can fall into this human habit of what I call self-invalidation. So when we go through a difficult experience, we will say something like, well, at least I didn't die of COVID, or at least I didn't know anyone who died of COVID, or at least the person that I knew who died was old. Like we, we sort of find a way to invalidate our own experience as not being as bad as someone else. And and I think there can be space for both. There can be space for gratitude that we didn't experience X, Y, Z, while also having anger or sadness or grief about what we did experience. Like we don't have to create a hierarchy about our experiences. And I've seen that a lot this past year. So many people saying, well, I have so much to be grateful for. And, and I think, yes, and. And, and so really, I think being mindful of that human tendency to invalidate. So to really say to ourselves, what has been hard for me about this year? What losses have I encountered and really take stock of the year and to think about it in a long-term kind of way, because this has been a a protracted amount of time. And so there have been different phases. So to really think about what, what has been challenging, again, we can also think about what went well, what do I have grateful for? I think that is really important too, but I think it's important for these different elements to coexist. So I think the acknowledgement process can look a lot like taking stock, reflecting on the year. Some, some people like to do that through conversation with other people. So it could involve another person. Some people prefer to do that in a more solitary way through journaling, through um, silence through meditation, through questioning, through just taking the time to sit with ourselves and ask some of these questions and really think about them and give ourselves the time and space to answer those questions. So I think it it does often need to start from within. But I do think for many of us, there can be an important component that is interpersonal because some of us benefit from having someone we love and trust hold up that mirror who can say, you know, I noticed that this aspect was really hard for you. And that doesn't seem like that's something that's really coming to mind for you. So sometimes we have, we have our, our ability, our consciousness to really fully see the depth of what we've experienced can be somewhat limited. And so having someone else shine the light on some of those areas we're less aware of, again, perhaps because of survival mode can be really powerful. And sometimes there can be a lot of power in saying something out loud. And that could be to yourself to say out loud, yeah, this year has been hard for me for these reasons. Some people notice that emotions flow more when they say something out loud, because it becomes more real, it feels more tangible. Again, that could be to yourself, 
it, as you said, it could also be to someone else. So I think it's sort of a both and answer to your question that it is individual to sort of figure out what is my personal process for acknowledging these things to myself that really resonates, that feels true, that feels meaningful, um, that starts from within and to what extent does it involve other people? Um, so it's, it's both in, in a personalized individual process. And I think it does need to start with ourselves. I think if we move too quickly to the, the sharing and the, and the trying to get feedback from other people, sometimes we can bypass important pieces because the other people in our lives are also seeing our life through a certain lens and they don't have as much access to our inner landscape. And so on the outside, we might have looked completely fine with something that happened with say our kids being at home or our fear around getting COVID. Um, so they're not able to really know how anxious we were, how stressed out we were. And so sometimes they just don't have that uh, ability to see inside of us as much as we do, but it is sometimes through these conversations that we can become more aware of what we might not have previously been seeing. Also, I appreciate so much you acknowledging that piece. It, it often seems that you know, comparison is sometimes one of the deterrents to people living a quality, of, the higher quality, emotional quality of life that they could. It starts as kids where we're comparing ourselves. We're not as pretty, not as athletic, not as strong, not as this, not as that. We're not picked first. We're, we're not picked fifth. And then it almost seems on the other end to evolve into this other piece of it well, where my pain isn't as severe as theirs. My loss wasn't as, mm -hmm. as great as theirs. I've shared with you, I do some work in the grief space and it's incredible to see how many people will struggle and suffer in large part because they're invalidating the significance of their loss and how they feel. Mm -hmm. And one interesting one that will often come up is people will talk about losing a pet. And they're even hesitant to say yeah. that because they feel shame in mentioning that they feel so deeply for their pet compared to somebody who feels so deeply for just having lost a spouse or grandmother. Mm -hmm. And it's like this preponderance we have with having to compare to understand versus just acknowledging that these emotional experiences we feel are unique to us and it's what we're feeling, which leads to then the question, so as someone, when you're supporting people, you have a loved one, you have somebody you know who has, who's starting to open up, they want to open up and they want to express to you. Now, I, I, I understand, so I understand everything I just told you. And then what I'll often find myself doing at times, if I haven't set myself in the right space, mm -hmm. is I want to start trying to fix mm -hmm. Or maybe I start judging and then I'll even catch myself. I have this dialogue, Jesse, what are you doing? Right? You know, they're just, they're just wanting to talk. They're just wanting to share. They just want you to have some empathy with them right now. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other piece of, no, 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 you got to fix it. Or, well, you know, you know, it's starting to explain it, trying to go into all that. Mm -hmm. How can we, how can we all, maybe I shouldn't say we, how can I, but how can we all, <laughs> because I don't want to be the only one over here on the island. How you're not, you're not alone on the island. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How can we all be better support systems for the people in our lives? How can we, how can we judge less? How can we love more? How can we be less quick to fix and quicker to just listen? Another beautiful question. I, I love the question and, and the heart space from which it comes. 
So I'll, I want to start off by saying the antidote to invalidation, whether it's us invalidating other people or us invalidating ourselves in my mind is validation. And when I talk about what validation means, how I define it is we're treating our experiences, emotions, life experiences, memories, behaviors, reactions as understandable and making sense. Mm. So love that. that that's how I think about it. So it's not positive affirmation. It's not praise. It's more like this makes sense given my life experiences, given human nature, given how I just interpreted the situation. Now that doesn't mean we excuse or condone behaviors in which we engage that might harm other people. But again, we can still balance the accountability and the acknowledgement of what we did that, that wasn't helpful, that was potentially harmful while also acknowledging, okay, I understand why I engaged in that way. It, it makes sense. I'm not excusing it. So holding both. And I think mm. that's relevant to what you're talking about right now, where I, I think this is a human tendency to want to fix and to launch into problem solving, especially when we see someone in pain. And so I think acknowledging, validating that tendency is really important because I think it's important to acknowledge that that is often a sign of our desire to express love and to express care. And it comes from a loving place. The flip side, as you said, is that sometimes it's not what people want or need. And so it is really important for us to be aware. I love how you put it of, of the space in, we are in when we are entering that kind of conversation. So I, I think about this as pretty multifaceted in that if I am expecting that I'm going to be in a situation where someone might be needing support or I might be wanting to give support, I have a, a bit of a ritual that I engage in to ground myself. And so I will have often some kind of mantra that I repeat to myself, like here to support, not to fix, or, or something that helps ground me in, in what my goal is, what my mm purposes and being present for that person. Personally, for me, do some, some movement, some deep breathing. So I just calm down my own nervous system because I think, again, we're human beings. And when someone else is struggling, it can also activate the parts in ourselves that are hurting. So it, it's, it's, it takes a lot to be present for other people in this way where we allow emotions to be without trying to launch into problem solving mode. So I do think having some kind of practice, so to speak, that you engage in before you enter is really important. It could be, and it could be simple. It could be short. It could be three deep breaths. It could be stating your intention to yourself, but something that works for you to help you explicitly clarify for yourself, what is your intention? What are you wanting to cultivate for this person? And then there's the more in the moment. Now, sometimes we don't always know when we're going to be supporting someone else. Um, and, and sometimes even when we've done this bit of preparation through some kind of practice or grounding ritual, we still find ourselves, like you said, launching into problem solving mode. And so I think something that is really helpful for me personally especially in, in my personal life when I'm supporting loved ones is I will just name that and be transparent. And I'll say, I'm noticing I'm having urges to mm -hmm. problem solve right now. 
are you wanting problem solving or are you more wanting a place to, to express and just be? So almost like I heard a psychologist refer to this once as channel checking. Like, are you on the problem solving channel or are you on the emotional expression channel and making sure that you're on the same channel as the other person? Because sometimes people actually do want tangible support or advice about next steps. And so just making sure that we're not presuming what someone else needs and it becomes more of a transparent conversation. And if we then notice ourselves saying, I'm so sorry, I just realized I launched into trying to solve the problem. And I know that's not what you said you, you need right now. So um, I'm, I'm going to try to circle back to, to being more present to what you need. So being able to just, I think, acknowledge our mistakes, repair them in the moment, bring ourselves back. It's almost like any kind of training that we do, whether it be physical training or mindfulness training, it's not a linear path. And sometimes we, we veer off track. And so in the course of a conversation, you might notice that you've 15 times tried to solve someone's problem or you've had the urge. And so it's less about like not having the urge and more about how are you responding to the urge? How are you recovering if you've let that urge kind of dictate and you have launched into it? How do you repair? How do you recommit? How do you engage in something in the moment that helps you keep your focus on that other person? Is it really honestly like looking in their eyes and allowing yourself to feel a slice of what they feel? Is it placing a hand on your belly and feeling your hand rise and fall with the rhythm of your breath? Is it repeating that mantra in, in your mind? And so it is a lot to ask, like you said, and yet it's so possible. It's so possible to cultivate more supportive environments for each other. And I think we should expect imperfection and validate that, that that's human and that we're going to fall into these habits because they're such common human habits and they do come from that loving place. So again, validating it without excusing it and letting it just take away and try experimenting with these different practices beforehand, during, and maybe afterwards saying, you know, I was reflecting on our conversation last week and I'm wondering how did that land for you? Like, is there anything differently I can do the next time? So you could also ask and be open to feedback and non-defensive if you get some constructive feedback, if you're willing to open yourself to that. I think that's a huge act of courage and vulnerability to put yourself out there and to say, hey, I want to do better by you. Yeah. I want, I really want to be here for you. Like, what? please tell me what I can do better. And sometimes people are more willing to tell us what we can do better if we say, um, if we say something like, I really want to hear something that, that I'm, I can do differently the next time I'm really open. It, I'm really open to hearing anything you have to say, even if it might be hard for me to hear. Like when we let people know that we're going to try to be non-defensive, that we really do truly want to hear their feedback, they're often more likely to give it. So I think we can also cultivate supportive environments of care after the fact too. And we can revisit things and check in with people in the same way that in retrospect, we might realize, Ooh, I, I think I actually did do a, a lot more problem solving than I, than I thought I did in the moment. And so I want to apologize. Melissa, gosh, that was such a powerful answer. And this is maybe more of a a personal question of you, a selfish question for me to ask. 
my aspiration is is to have many of my actions when they involve other people to come from a loving place and to be able to to be more loving less judgmental to be able to mm-hmm. you know act from a place of love understanding what somebody's needs are to be able to act from a place of love and and if I find myself fixing, circle back around and apologize and say, gosh, I realize I, was so, I might have been fixing more. I am so sorry. But as much as that might be my aspiration, I find myself often wrestling with that ego piece and that my own selfish desire to allow that emotional, emotional hit that comes from whatever state that is. You know, it's kind of like, I know when the driver cuts me off on the freeway, they're not making about me. They probably don't even know I exist. And the most loving version of myself would be, gosh, you know, I, I hope somebody, I hope they're okay. Maybe they just found out their mom has cancer. But part of my struggle will be usually, you know, what a jerk, they didn't have anything about me. They must have, they must have, you know, whatever it is I make up in that moment. <laughs> So the question is, is how, what do you, do you have a process that you ground yourself in? I, I know you kind of mentioned a couple of things, but do you have a, a desired state intention? You have a great mantra that you use to do it. And is that mantra anchored in a, an intention for what emotional state or what purpose or intention you're trying to operate from? Does that question make sense? That's kind of all yes. Yeah, it does. Well, I'll, I'll answer and then you can also chime in with additional questions if you, if you have them. So I, I think when I hear you talking, I hear a bit about cultivating love and also cultivating compassion and compassion please don't quote me on the etymology of this word, but I believe it has its roots in um, being with suffering. So compassion is about not just listening to someone, but also about allowing ourselves to be moved by someone else's suffering. And as you said, we, we don't always know the extent of someone's suffering. And and so I think of of love and compassion as going hand in hand. And sometimes compassion can feel more immediately accessible than love, especially in a circumstance like you described where we may not know someone or maybe they've actually done something that has hurt us. And so sometimes there's also forgiveness that gets wrapped up in here too. And I know that's a a complex process and a bit of a loaded word, but my point is that I think there is a way to approach this in kind of a stepwise fashion. So when I think about compassion, I think about the recognition that as human beings, we have a birthright to not suffer. And I understand that that can feel harder to acknowledge when we're considering trying to cultivate compassion for someone who has deeply harmed us, right? And and as you read in my bio, I do work with people who have experienced intense trauma. And so people whose children have been murdered, loved ones who have died by suicide. Um, so, So there is just so much pain in the world. And so I'm not saying that 
we need to force something either. And I think that's an important piece too, is that having compassion for yourself if you're having a hard time cultivating compassion or love for someone else, because it is a process that can't be rushed and it is complicated. And so I, and, and this is something that is talked about in meditation and Buddhist psychology as well, that um, kind of starting where you're at. And so for me, if I'm trying to cultivate compassion or love towards someone that is very hard for me to cultivate that compassion or love towards, um, I will have some kind of mantra like, may I someday be able to have compassion for this person. So almost like setting the intention. And one of my favorite meditation teachers, Tara Brock, uses these kinds of mantras often. Similarly with forgiveness, may I one day forgive myself? May I one day treat myself with, with more love or compassion for this action that I made that I'm not proud of. So sometimes that can be a way to get a little bit closer to cultivating that compassion and love. What I will also say is that something that helps me is often thinking about someone else as a child. So if I picture that person as as a young child, even if I don't know what they looked like, sometimes that can help me evoke a bit more compassion because I think for many of us, the innocence of children and the zest that they have for life can help us see like each of us was a child at some point. And sometimes that imagery can be a powerful way to spark just a little bit of, of compassion or love. And another thing I'll say about what you shared is that our minds are judging machines. So that's like what they're designed to do. So none of us can stop judging. I mean, that is just what the mind does. And so again, acknowledging that I think is important paired with that doesn't mean that judgments need to dictate our behavior or define how we interact with people. And so I think there is a lot of power in noticing the judging and labeling it as judging. So being able to take more of a witness stance and to observe, oh, I see my mind going into judgment mode again. Oh, I see how angry I am towards this this other person. Oh, I see the story I'm making up about this other person that is feeling my anger because that can de-identify. It it, it can detach us from the narrative, so to speak, from our thoughts, to see our thoughts as thoughts rather than facts, to see our emotions as emotions rather than facts. So to get that little bit of distance can help us become less identified with the story, with the emotions, with the thoughts in a way that gives us space to to choose differently. Um, Viktor Frankl has a very famous quote, which again, please don't quote me on the exact specifics, but it's something like... um, about the space between stimulus and response that we have choice. And so I think sometimes slowing down, naming what we're experiencing, naming what patterns or habits our mind is falling into can be a powerful way to diffuse the emotion and to give us that pause between whatever activated us, the stimulus, so to speak, and our response. So we can make a different choice. We can maybe not swear at the driver who cut us off or honk our horn or whatever it is, or go home and be cranky with someone that we love. So, so I think um, I'm, I'm responding to your question with a lot of different threads here, but I think for me, compassion can often feel like a more accessible way to build love. And, and I think compassion is a form of love too. Um, 
and and so love and compassion both are also like very conditional feel unconditional feelings as well it's sort of like we want to be able to to truly feel love and compassion we're not making it contingent on someone else's behavior people are deserving of love and compassion even when they're in a situation because they messed up and mm-hmm. and again that's that can be hard to get to so i think for me thinking about compassion thinking about intention or mantra around may i someday be able to do this or i hope to someday be able to do this so again in your own language i think some of the imagery i talked about can also be helpful imagining someone as a child or even if you have a very revered spiritual figure or historical figure or someone in your life living or dead who really embodies a spirit of love and compassion sometimes calling the image of that being animal place in nature person to mind can help us cultivate that that sense of compassion sometimes like even just placing your hand over your beating heart can be a way to access compassion so experiencing and exploring for yourself is it through mantra is it through touch is it through imagery what helps me stoke the fire of compassion what helps me cultivate it and build it because i think it's different for each of us and in every circumstance so i hope that wasn't too long-winded no, <laughs> of an answer to your question beautiful answer melissa i feel like we've barely even begun to go down the rabbit hole but we're running up on time before i ask my final question where can people connect with you online so I would love for anyone who's interested to reach out and I have an Instagram account, which is Dr. Foynes. I also have a website, melissafoynes.com. I have a Facebook page, Dr. Melissa Foynes. And I also have a free four-part video series, which is focused on resilience building and integrates evidence-based tools from psychology with some tools and strategies from different wisdom traditions like Buddhist psychology, meditation and mindfulness, yoga and Ayurveda. And so you can also find a link to that on my website and Instagram account. Perfect. Melissa, you hold such a beautiful space. And I think you speak so eloquently about the human, the human experience, the human condition. You know, as we emerge from this past year, as we start to really look ahead, probably for the first time in a, in a way that we haven't for quite some time, if you were granted a, a magic wand and were able to sprinkle you know, the magic pixie dust across humanity and do it with the intention of what is going to help humans evolve to be you know, for lack of better language, better version of self as a collective whole, mm-hmm. what would that, what, what would you sprinkle? What would you put out there for people to help that make that manifest that into reality? Oh, there are so many things. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we, we don't have enough time probably to go through all the things. So I'll pick a few. So I think one, one core element that I would sprinkle is self-compassion. So as I was mentioning earlier, the ability to name, acknowledge, honor, and be moved by our own pain and to treat ourselves with that inner kindness, the way that we would treat a loved one. Because I do think because of the society we live in, many of us are prone to 
creating hierarchies with our experiences, like you said, comparing ourselves to others, deeply criticizing ourselves and our emotional experiences. And so to be able to acknowledge our humanity. So it's, it's both acknowledging our humanity and having compassion for ourselves, even when we, even when, and especially when we mess up and we're imperfect. So I think those are our pieces that I would sprinkle the recognition of our shared humanity, as well as self-compassion. And I think extending that outward is, is trying our best to have compassion for other people. I'm not saying that we excuse their behavior that has hurt us, or we have to maintain connection with every person or human being that has harmed us or express love to everyone, but so that we are not being burdened by those potential seeds of resentment and bitterness. And I think that comes back to the shared humanity piece. I don't have to like someone or agree with them and I don't have to be cruel or unkind. And so finding what that means in our lives. And I think the other thing I would sprinkle because I know I were assured on time, it relates back to your question earlier about how can we create more supportive environments for each other? Because I think many of us are conditioned to be scared of emotion and to fix and to feel like people need to hurry up with their timeline of moving through a difficult experience and really listening in a deep way like with full presence of mind and body and heart and spirit. So we're not present in body, but thinking about our to-do list or again, we all get distracted. We all fall off course, but to really cultivate that deep listening that's, that's fully present because there's a lot of healing that can happen. And when we're all working on that together I think there is so much power in the momentum of the, the collective. I think individual and collective healing are synergistic and work together. So by working on ourselves, we heal the collective and by working together, we heal ourselves. So I love that. Everyone, my goodness, are you going to want to dive deeply into this conversation and we watch, we listen as often as needed. I feel like Melissa and I went deep and yet we feel, also, I feel like we barely began to scratch the surface of what we could have discussed and covered in this conversation. A few of the highlights were really talking about what it looks like to be supportive, learning to acknowledge and beginning with acknowledging what have you been through and not minimizing your experience compared to someone else. You know, oftentimes comparison is the, we compare ourselves to the detriment of our own well-being and allowing yourself, giving yourself permission to just acknowledge what have you been through? What have you experienced this past year? What's been hard and difficult, challenging for you? And then once you're able to acknowledge to yourself to move on to the next piece, which opening up to a loved one. If you're in that loved one and you're in that support position with someone, learning to support and giving yourself permission not to judge, but just to listen, being willing to ask the questions and check in. I, I love the distinction Melissa made of asking the question, you know, are you just needing somebody to listen right now? Or are you needing, are you wanting some advice on how to maybe fix this? And if you find yourself drifting to one side or the other, the side that the person who you're supporting requested that they didn't need, be willing to check in and apologize afterwards. Hey, you know, I realized that I might have been fixing a little bit more than I needed to be, or you asked for. I'm really sorry about that. How are you doing? Looking at compassion, compassion for others, but what we rarely will talk about is compassion for self. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing of humanity, as quick as we are to judge 
uh, judge others. And often those are the newsreel highlights and the things we see pasted across social media. I think all of us can agree and acknowledge that we are far harder on ourselves than we are on any other human beings. And I love that she closed with that notion of if she could sprinkle a little something onto the world, it would be compassion for self and also us learning to listen a little bit more, supporting one another, that the synergy of healing and, and really moving forward, they can be a beautiful synergy, can be a beautiful relationship. It begs a question as we end today, and maybe it's something that you can think for yourself on this, is what could your life look like if you showed yourself a little bit more compassion? What could your life look like if you extended compassion a little bit more to the people that are in your life, your friends, your family, your coworkers, the person who cut you off on the drive to work today? I don't know about all of you, but I am deeply inspired from the conversation with Melissa today to certainly extend more compassion to myself and more compassion of others. And Melissa, I appreciate the conversation today for your wisdom you shared the love and compassion you extended to all of us and the space you held. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everybody, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to